follow along. And the next chapter that we're beginning this week and probably will stay with for a couple weeks at least, maybe three weeks, is on karma. Karma and rebirth. So generally people like talking about karma and rebirth. It's one of the interesting topics in Buddhist practice. But I'm sure you all realize it's not about being an interesting topic. In fact, uh, in terms of trying to understand the ins and outs of karma, the Buddha considers considers it one of the four imponderables. Basically, you're going insane if you try to figure it out, like why this has happened. But the principle of karma is very uh, relatively easy to understand, and it's really important to understand. The Buddha actually called it the light of the world in the sense that understanding karma, cause and effect, illuminates how things work. It's like spiritual kindergarten. I mean, not in the sense that a lot of us understand it a lot of the time in our life, but that it's really the first step on a spiritual path is just to begin to understand how things come to be. Like, how does this unhappiness come to be? Or how does this ease or happiness come to be? Instead of having, you know, like magical thinking that, oh, I'm happy today because somebody up there is shining on me and helping me, or whatever sort of thinking we might have, you know, I'm happy today because the stars are that way. Now, I'm not even saying that those things aren't true, that there isn't some beneficent being shining down on us making our lives go well, or that the stars are in a certain configuration and that somehow is related to having a good day or a bad day. But what's important is what, what can we know, how can we understand things to support the arising of wholesome states and avoid the arising of unwholesome states? What particular role does this mind play in the arising of happiness and unhappiness. That's what's relevant. And so uh, the whole process of insight isn't about thinking about karma or cause and effect, but really looking directly. And so... uh, in Ajahn Sumedho's chapter, he starts out with sort of an obvious thing, which he says uh, is a major component in our particular situation, which was we were all born. Right? And having been born, there's certain karmic implications to having been born. So just think for a moment all the things that are true because we're born. Having been born, certain things happen. Not having been born, these things wouldn't happen. Right? One way the Buddha talks about all the things that happen when you're born, he talks about the eight winds, the inevitable eight winds that happen when you're born. You know, like sometimes there's gain and sometimes there's loss. Sometimes there's pleasure, sometimes there's unpleasantness. Sometimes there's praise, sometimes there's blame. Sometimes there's fame, sometimes there's disrepute. And this activity of these eight winds 
it's unavoidable for a human being that's been born or for a being that's been born. I don't know if birds have fame or disrepute. <laughs> well, I guess they do. They have a pecking order, right? Just like we do. Maybe not quite as complex as ours, but basically it's, it's really similar, I think. And this is just the karmic implication of being born. So one of the great uh, boons of understanding karma is it, it helps us live. I mean, that's the whole point. It's not a philosophy. It's really just understanding the dynamic of this existence. For example, even with something as simple as you know, understanding that we've been born, and so these things happen, it really changes our relationship. Like, we're not surprised when there's fame or blame because we understand that just that comes with having a body and a mind there's going to be pain and pleasure there's going to be gain and loss you can't be born and not have these eight wins so why are we surprised so delighted when good things happen so disturbed when bad things happen There's the basic <clears throat> sort of uh, more subtle, more deep teaching coming out of the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. Intentional thoughts, intentional actions have consequences, which is called dependent origination or codependent arising. has different ways of being translated. Um, the Buddhist teaching on this wheel of causation. And... Uh, one way that wheel of causation is summarized is with the arising of this comes the arising of that. Without the arising of this, that doesn't arise. And we can just think about that. And I try to uh, bring this up a little bit in the guided sit tonight. <clears throat> with the mind, uh, with the arising of pain, it depending on how we're conditioned, but usually with the arising of pain in the body, usually comes the arising of not liking the pain in the mind, right? If there weren't pain, there wouldn't be the not liking of pain. So we just see how one's condition, conditioning the other. They rise in conjunction, dependence on one another. And we want to start to see this all day long in the most or ordinary ways about how, especially how our mind states come to be. We see something attractive and we start spinning with lust or wanting, desire. We see something repulsive and we start spinning with aversion. I had an unpleasant memory. My mind, what arose in my mind was trying to control, trying to fix this problem in my mind so that it wouldn't be an aversive situation would be an unpleasant situation. So the more we understand this, the more we begin to see what needs to be done. So what we normally think when we're not looking carefully is we think, uh, oh, I know what I have to do. I have to get rid of all aversive thoughts because if I don't have those unpleasant thoughts, then I won't react with, you know, 
aversion and trying to fix it, trying to get rid of it. But hopefully, if we do that reflection, we realize there's no way to be alive and not be vulnerable to unpleasant thoughts. That that's the eight winds. It just comes. Having a body and a mind, we're going to have pleasant thoughts and unpleasant thoughts. Pleasant situations and unpleasant situations. Gain and loss. That's just how it is. So that's not the solution. That can't be the solution for happiness. I just won't think about that. <laughs> Has that ever worked? <laughs> but that's basically our approach to living, isn't it? It's like we kind of get you know, that we're reacting and it's painful, but we think we need to get rid of the trigger for the reaction. When we look at karma in a more subtle way, we see that the, uh, the real force in karma is intention in the mind. In Eastern philosophy, especially uh, as opposed to sort of Western scientific philosophy, which in a way we think of biology being sort of the basis of life and the basis of the mind. You know, there's this biology and somehow it supports this mind. And, you know, a lot of scientists are doing very interesting study in the brain and they think they're understanding the mind. They're using the biology to understand the mind. But in Eastern spiritual traditions, it's really the mind that is the forerunner. So you don't need to believe this. It's not something to believe. But just to keep our minds open to, to think of that the biology arises independence on the mind, as opposed to the mind rising independence on the body. Again, don't believe this, but just keep our minds open. Clearly, they're related. Right? Both schools would say the two are related, that the mind is related to the body or the body is related to the mind. So we, we, I think we all know directly in our experience that the mind and the body are related. <clears throat> it's just a question of how, that, how it unfolds. And so in the Buddhist tradition, coming out of this basic view that the mind, that subtle drives gross, that things go from subtle to gross as opposed to gross to subtle. So one of the most subtle things is intention in the mind, even in a sense before thought. Before we can even have a thought, there's a, an about-to moment in the mind that then triggers you know, a particular image or thought, which then maybe triggers the next thought or image. So intention in the mind. So what is intention is or volition? It's like unfinished business in the mind. It's uh, in a way the best one of the best ways to think about intention is something taking birth in the mind. So instead of the body taking birth, you know, somebody walks in the room and then something we see that person and then something takes birth in the mind. Like Ah, or ah. Oh. <laughs> so think about how many times something has taken, taken birth in our mind today. So we're going about our day, and these, these uh, intentions that arise in the mind, of course, don't come out of nowhere. 
But when they arise in the mind, in that about-to moment, then something is being set in motion. What's being set in motion is arising in conjunction or uh, independence on something else. could be even a thought, like we have a thought, and then an intention arises based on having had that thought. I want to have that thought again. That was a nice thought. That makes me feel good. Worrying. Right? Sometimes worrying makes us feel good. So it's like, oh yeah, I do need to worry about that. Let me worry about that again. I mean, we don't say that to ourselves, but that's pretty much what we do. We, we worry. That creates this feeling of anxiety. Independence on that feeling of anxiety. We think, I should worry. And then we worry. And we reinforces the anxiety, which triggers the next moment of thinking, worrying. But there's a particular link that we want to begin to recognize, which is the intention in the mind. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have a saying, something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or uh, Joseph Goldstein, I think, said, what most completely determines the results in our own lives of our actions is the motivation behind actions. what most completely determines the result in our own lives of our actions is the motivation behind the action. Actions. So there's, you know, the basic law that if you plant an acorn, you get an oak tree. So if you have a wholesome intention you get wholesome results. If you have an unwholesome intention, we get unwholesome results. Did I say that one? Wholesome leads to wholesome, unwholesome leads to unwholesome. And it's just, it's uh, tautological because we define a wholesome intention according to wholesome results, right? That's how we know it's wholesome. We know it's a wholesome intention if it leads to wholesome results, pleasant results. And we know it's an unwholesome intention in the mind if it relates to painful results. So I'm not saying anything that anybody can disagree with here. The question is, are we making that connection? Are we making the connection between the intention in the mind or the motivation in the mind and unpleasantness arising for us, pain arising for us? Or... <coughs> Wholesome intention in good states, good situations arising. Kanisaro Bhikkhu is a well-known Buddhist monk, American monk. He's the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego. Wat Metta. Wat just means monastery. It's the Thai word for monastery. Metta is loving kindness, so it's the monastery of loving kindness. And he's a prolific translator and writer, and a really good teacher. <clears throat> he says, taking refuge in the Buddhist sense is essentially an act of taking refuge in the doctrine of karma. It is similar to an act of submission in that one is committed to living in line with the belief that actions based on skillful intentions lead to happiness while actions based on unskillful intentions 
lead to suffering. It is similar to an act of claiming protection in that one trusts that by following the teaching, one will not fall into misfortune that bad karma engenders. To take refuge in this way ultimately means to take refuge in the quality of one's own intentions, for that is where the essence of karma lies. So, in, a, in, in actually a real sense, this is what we're devoted to. Not to, uh, like in the Buddhist tradition, not to a God that sits in judgment on us, but we understand that the driving force for how things unfold is the quality of our intention. So what we do is we, we practice this devotion, and the expression of this devotion is paying attention, is being mindful. We are being mindful of our intentions. So even though we watch the breath, or even though we listen to the sounds of the birds in a mindful way, or feel the body moving, walking in a mindful way, all of that mindfulness of the activity of our life is in the service of the mind being quiet, not so distracted, so that we're more able to recognize intention. Because it's subtle, obviously. The intentions, motivations in the mind, in the heart, are quite subtle and fleeting. They're just like little flashes. It's hard to recognize them, to be mindful of them. So we use all these relatively easy things to be mindful of, like walking, like breathing, like sensations in the body, like the birds, hearing the sounds of the birds. We use those to develop a greater sensitivity, quality of presence, it's really beautiful. It's a you know. There's a lot of joy in just being mindful in that way, and that joy helps us to relax, to calm down, and it just makes it easier to recognize the subtle aspect of the mind, which I'm calling intention or motivation. So the interesting question is, how is this? Uh, how does this work? You know, how does intention lead to action, and then that action somehow condition the future? And the chapter uh, Ajahn Sumedho gives the example of. You know, somebody who spends their day doing despicable deeds and uh, robbing and stealing and beating up and slandering. And then they go and, you know, and sit, have a sit at the end of the evening like a good Buddhist meditator. And just to imagine what would be going on in their mind. It's the same for us, of course. You know, we. We do things sometimes that are not so skillful. And then if you ever notice, sitting afterward, or even going on retreat five months later, those things come up. Even things you did 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago can come up in, during a sit or um, a meditation uh, retreat. All that unfinished business. So where... Where is that? How is that held? That that sort of uh, the effect of some intention, some intentional action, right? If we murdered somebody when we were young, 
when the fruit of that action arises, how does it how does it get held? And this this is really an important thing to reflect on. Again, we could talk about it, but what's really interesting is just to notice directly in our experience that when we do something unskillful and we know it, then watch its effect on the mind, on the heart, body. And if we do something really skillful, notice its effect. Like if you did something spontaneously generous today, you let a bunch of people in on the interstate, you know, that needed to get into that lane and... You didn't have to let them in. You were well-established. You were there first. And you just decided to let them in. Or something else like that. And uh, you can just... Excuse me. Notice how every time that memory comes up, there's a pleasant feeling. And if you didn't let them in, you know, every time that memory comes up, depending on the particular circumstances, like if you just didn't let them in because you just didn't want to, then then there's an unpleasant experience. So we're carrying, right now in this moment, we're carrying the results of all of our unskillful actions right now and all the results of our skillful actions right now. And if the particular conditions of this moment is just right, then... It will water certain seeds that, you know, those past seeds, and they'll come up in our mind, they'll arise in our mind. So it makes a difference. But what the, the law of karma says is that as long as there are seeds, we're vulnerable to them arising, to them getting watered. It's like a a bit of unfinished business somewhere in the mind, unconscious, conscious, moving. It's got some potential energy, right? Waiting for a proper moment to arise in consciousness and to affect our action if we don't see it. If we're mindful, it can arise in our consciousness, in our mind, and if we're mindful, we can just see it and feel it and not act it out. But if we're not so mindful, we'll just act it out. So in a sense, our personality right now is just the expression of what's been set in motion in the past. And... It's not everything that's been set in motion in the past, because some of that stuff is submerged. It isn't being currently, in this moment, expressed in terms of our personality. But if my life situation shifted, you know, if all of a sudden I fell into poverty, and my wife left me, and, uh, you know, I got fired, well, different seeds would get watered. And my personality then would adjust and it would express those seeds that are now being watered. But now I'm in a situation where I feel loved and I feel supported. And uh, <clears throat> I like my job. And so different seeds are being watered. And so my personality expresses that. So that's kind of an interesting thing 
to realize that who we are, in a very real sense, it just depends on what karmic seeds are being watered. And it all, it all makes us responsible, not just for ourselves, but for each other. It's like we help, we co-create other people by what seeds we water in them. You know, I know I, I know I can have particular effects on my wife, just like she can have effects on me. I mean, we can get into, you know, uh, self-righteous discussions, and it waters certain seeds, and we become self-righteous. Or we can, you know, uh, have a different kind of conversation, and different aspects of our personality will manifest. I think about this sometimes, like when I'm... Um, kind of in a greedy mood, you know, want to eat it, wanting to eat everything in the house or something like that, or wanting just to uh, get lost in some movie. Or <clears throat> I not only think about the implications of that activity in my own mind, but I also see that if I indulge in these activities in an unskillful way, I see that I'm also creating, uh, I'm watering seeds in my partner too. It makes it easier for her to sort of not do what she would rather do or should do, but do something else that maybe isn't as healthy or wholesome. You know, we're so vulnerable to the environment, our immediate environment. In a way, we we co-create the field that stimulates all of our seeds. One of the nice things about having a center is that at least when we're here, you know, part of our job, the whole community's job, is that when we're here together, we kind of have a deal that we're just going to water good seeds. And everyone, you know, often people say, you know, how nice it is to be a common ground how nice everybody seems. But you know what? We're not nice. We're just nice here when we're together because we've we've watered certain intentions and this place kind of becomes about these particular intentions like being patient. Do you see anybody sort of cutting in line trying to get in the hall? You know, taking your coat and throwing it down and putting it out? I mean, we don't have that kind of behavior. And people, when they speak, other people really listen. No one criticizes people, or usually people don't criticize people. And so people feel really safe here, too. And now we could think of another place, you know, like some of you, I'm sure, hopefully not too many of you, but some of you probably work in uh, places, work environments that are really unhealthy. And, and probably your worst tendencies get watered in those places. And you end up kind of acting in ways you know better, but <clears throat> for whatever reason in those situations, it's hard not to act unskillfully. And we can have a lot of compassion for people who are, are caught in those kind of places. And we can have a lot of sympathetic joy, mudita, for people who are in really wholesome places. It's really nice living and working here because people are generally uh, in really good places when they're here. That doesn't mean that they're not suffering, but when they're with, when, even when they're suffering, generally speaking, 
people have a lot of compassion for their suffering, so they're not acting it out. Now, of course, this, I'm not, I don't want to oversimplify things, but relatively speaking, it's a really nice place to work, I think. <laughs> Buddha has this great line that is often repeated. Different, it's translated in different ways. One way it's translated is, owners of their karma are the beings, heirs of their karma. Their karma is their womb from which they are born. Their karma is their friend, their refuge. Whatever karma they perform, good or bad, thereof they will be the heirs. <coughs> read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho's book, Karma and Rebirth. This is chapter 5. Reflect on your own experience. If you tell lies or gossip about someone, or take some little thing, when you sit and meditate, does it make you feel good? Or is it something you don't even want to know about that you'd like to forget? We should keep in mind the fact that we'll have to remember whatever we do. If we do bad things, then we have bad memories. If we, have, if we do good things, we have good memories. It's as simple as that. If you do good things, if you're kind and generous, and you sit in meditation, the memory arises, I just helped someone, I did something good. What comes is a happy feeling. That happy feeling helps in meditation. There's a kind of joy, a rapture, that comes from reflecting on the good deeds you've done. It is one of the factors of enlightenment. This is the kind of karma that you can prove to yourself, not through believing what I say, but by observing and reflecting on how it works in your own life. There's a famous story from the time of the Buddha where Sariputta, one of the, uh, the Buddhist chief disciple and Ananda, went to visit Anathapindaka, who was the chief uh, male lay disciple of the Buddha. Uh, he was very wealthy and very generous, and he uh, created a, a beautiful park for the monks to stay, the monks and the nuns to stay, and often fed the monks and nuns. And uh, he was dying, and as people often are, in a lot of pain. And so Ananda and, and Sariputta went to visit him, and uh, they asked him, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain, my mind's unclear. And so what they did... <coughs> is they started asking him some questions about all the good deeds he had done in his life, all the generous things he had done in his life. And in remembering those things, he, he had a lot of pleasant feelings, just in remembering all the good things he did in his life. And so his mind, you know, because there was pleasantness, he, was, he had some space from all the pain involved in the dying process. And then once his mind was relatively not caught up in all the pain, then they did some. They gave him some nice dharma instruction about, basically, about letting go of everything, and he did before he died. This is the essence of practice: dying before we die. And uh, he had a, a deep awakening, right there before he died. And um, 
really was thankful and made Sariputta and Ananda promise that the Buddha and the monks and nuns would give these teachings to lay people and not keep them just for monastics. <coughs> so it's just a simple example. And I've actually, ever since having read that story, I've used this a lot when people are in a lot of distress, is I'll try to remind them of some of the beautiful things they've done. And this is actually just part of the, you know, if you, if you read some of the hospice material these days, it's just part of the system now that one of the things you can do with people when they're old and dying or not old and dying is just help them remember. It's, it's not about being nostalgic. as about changing the mind by instead of being afraid of the pain or afraid of die, the dying process, which is a contracted state, you can help people bring to mind something that will put the mind in an expansive state. And the mind is just much more useful when it's in an expanded state than when it's in a contracted state. So there's some, you know, this, the Buddha calls this the light of the world. And it's because the principle of karma, the more we understand it and then we start to live from it, it just changes our life. Padmasa Sambhava, the great saint that brought Buddhism to Tibet, back uh, from India to Tibet, um, he has this wonderful line where he says, although my mind is as vast as the sky, right? so in Buddhism we often think of the essence of practice as this sort of seeing everything as empty, or empty of, empty of self, like nothing apart from anything else, or as a whole. But he said, even though I, my mind is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour, which is pretty fine. <laughs> so that's really nice because <clears throat> if we get really intoxicated with the idea of the philosophical idea of emptiness, of wholeness, it's very easy to sort of neglect, somehow think we don't have to pay attention to our actions in the world, that it doesn't matter. And actually, it's both. It's like we want to understand the conditional, how everything is happening on its own. We want that view, but not at the expense of understanding that intention matters. Intentional actions have consequences. That we can actually live with both. They don't negate each other. We can have that vast sense of space, of freedom, and be quite willing to be uh, paying attention to the consequences of our actions. It's like the Buddha had his big awakening under the Bodhi tree. He could have spent his life, you know, you know, he's free, so he could do whatever he wanted. He could rob and still have sex with whoever, whoever he wanted. Or, but that does, it wouldn't make sense. So that's not the power of freedom, that you get to do everything you want. The power of freedom is that in doing everything that's right, you don't have a problem with it. It's not, it's not hard to do what's right. That's what freedom is. Freedom means that you're completely at ease doing what's appropriate moment by moment. You so 
are going to do what's appropriate moment by moment. It's just that you have a lot of ease and freedom in doing what's appropriate. So this is really our path, is to both understand what's appropriate moment by moment through this sort of ongoing reflection on karma and the development of insight, which is really the deepening of freedom or ease as we live our human live out our human existence, which is trying to do what's appropriate moment by moment, but to do it with a deep, pervasive freedom. And so even if we make a mistake, there's there's the freedom is expressed as forgiveness. And we go on in the next moment, right? Because that's the appropriate response when you make a mistake is forgiveness. And then the next moment, and then the next moment. So maybe I'll leave it here. Um, We'll obviously be talking about it for several more weeks, but this will give us some time. Generally, people have some thoughts about karma. So any questions that you might have or comments from your own reflection that you've been doing over the years that you'd like to share with the group tonight? Jim? to these seeds that are being watered in water is unfinished business. And to me that means that, that they can be processed. Is, is it a process of, I mean, are these seeds something that grow and then somehow can be processed by the mind or the water? Yeah, in fact, one of the things we do when we're sitting is like the sort of people who do a lot of Buddhist meditation retreats have some slang and one phrase is burning karma. So there's this idea that, you know, in sitting practice, but it's not just in sitting practice, but it kind of uh, sometimes on retreat, it seems in, it's like it's uh, true in a more exaggerated way that we're burning karma in the sense that a lot's coming up, but the mind, the heart is really steady and non-reactive with everything that's coming up. So it could be all kinds of painful memories or just painful stuff, mental and physical stuff arising in the moment and arising and arising and arising. But the mind is being really open and non-reactive to it. And in a sense, we're burning up those seeds. Just like we'd be creating seeds or reinforcing those seeds if when something comes up externally or internally and we react to it with attachment or identification, that's establishing seeds or reinforcing seeds. So the, the undoing of seeds is when they come up into the moment, they're known as something in the moment, then we're intimate, we're right there, but we're not reacting to them in any way. That's the burning up of the seeds, or the, the unwinding of the seeds. Does that kind of get at what you're asking? And at that point there, I mean, when you say burn karma and burn the seeds, are the seeds no longer there, or they no longer be able to be watered? At some point, yeah, but it just depends on how much they've unwound. Yeah, it's like you probably know <clears throat> too. Like maybe you had uh, early in your life had a particular personality trait or habit. You know, like you, if this happened, you'd get really upset um, and maybe even freak out. Like even certain phobias. Um, but then through a pro- whatever kind of process you went through, we can get to a place where 
that particular, those particular circumstances, there's nothing left to trigger. There's like that pattern isn't there to be triggered anymore. And you can even, you know, really try, you know, like climb a mountain and see if you're afraid of heights or go skydiving and see if you're afraid of heights. So it is possible to uh, let whatever conditioning has been set in motion to let it unwind through the process of non-reactivity. A basic mindfulness practice, like being really mindful, which means seeing without reacting, seeing without identification or attachment. Yeah, and this is how we become lighter in practice. I mean, enlightenment's kind of a nice word. It can be a nice word because it connotes this through the process of of developing awareness. Then we have this possibility to use the awareness to be with what's arising without reacting to it. And so that stuff unwinds. And then we're lighter. We're, we're not burdened with that, those seats or, or as those seats aren't as wound up as they were before. And the, the definition of a fully enlightened being is all the seeds of aversion have been unwound. All the seeds of greediness have, have been unwound. All the seeds of not seeing things clearly have been unwound. So when those, all those seeds have been unwound, then that's the technical definition of a fully enlightened being. There's no, nothing could happen, let's say you're fully enlightened. There's nothing, if we put our minds together, there's nothing we could do to stimulate greed in you. There's nothing we could do to stimulate anger in you. There's a well-known teacher in India who died in like 64, 1964, Swami Shivananda. And uh, he had this great saying, uh, like defining enlightenment. And he would always, to see if someone was enlightened, he would always say, well, they need the SB40. Shoe beating 40 times. And in India, you know, shoes shoes are very, uh, considered to be very unholy. Like, you don't touch somebody else's shoes. You don't even point your feet at somebody. It's really rude. Like, if, <laughs> if you stuck your feet out at me, you know, Chris would be doing something very wrong in India. In fact, if you do that, if Westerners go to India and they do that, somebody will tell them, you know, you don't point your feet at somebody. And so... The idea is the way you would test somebody's enlightenment is you would take your shoe and you'd beat them and you'd see what kind of response you got from the person. I mean, it's a silly example. But you, you get the idea that it's like anger doesn't arise. And then you know that anger doesn't arise. Now, we only know anger won't arise when <clears throat> it hasn't arisen, but there's always another experience. We haven't had every experience that's possible to have. So it's like... Anger hasn't arisen yet, but maybe now, you know, maybe now. There's another fun story of a man uh, who practiced in a cave for a number of years, a sort of quintessential yogi in the cave, and finally he feels like he's fully enlightened. He's walking down, and people are amazed that he's leaving the cave, and <clears throat> a little boy goes, Oh, Master, you know, it's so great that you're leaving. Uh, have you found, you know, awakening? He says, Yes. I have completely eliminated anger from my heart. And the little boy is just amazed. No anger at all? No anger at all. Not even a little bit? No, I'm telling you, there's no anger at all. <laughs> That's so hard to believe. Are you sure? <laughs> and of course, you know how it goes. <laughs> the guy gets angry at the little kid. 
and then sees Eddie's anger and he walks back up <laughs> to the cave. Actually, he'd probably be better off practicing in town. <laughs> in, the, in the example, the, there's a beautiful metaphor in the teachings about this where uh, the Buddha uses uh, in a passage, in a talk he gave about karma, he uses this example of a small like glass of water. And he said, if we, if we take a lump of salt and we put it in that glass of water, it's not really going to affect the salt, I have the water. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm a little spaced out. <laughs> it's going to affect the water quite a bit. It's going to make it salty. But it, he says, if you take that same lump of salt and you put it in the Ganges River, it doesn't affect it much. And this is a little bit like um, <clears throat> if, you know, if you take someone who hasn't done much practice and you put them in a war zone or in a really uh, a place where there's a lot of unwholesome actions, like you know a bad bar, <laughs> then the, then it's likely that that person is going to start acting out in ways that aren't so good. Or, but if you put somebody who has a very spacious heart and mind, so the mind isn't cluttered with a lot of of unwholesome conditioning, like unfinished business or those seeds. So even though they're in a war zone, there's not much to trigger. There's not a lot of hate a lot of anger to trigger. My wife, Wynn, um, she's a choreographer, and she did a piece uh, two years ago um, called Lament, and it was really about killing. And she found this book. She, she, one of her students had been uh, a Marine and uh, <clears throat> told her about this book on killing written by some military people. Uh, about how this problem, they, they realized after World War II how few people actually shot to kill in, in the U.S. Army and Marine Corps and whatever. And they realized it was a big problem. It was like most of the killing that took place was done by just a small percentage of the people, like I think it was 20 or 30 percent. And so over the couple decades, they figured out how to train people in the Army so that the kill rate went up to closer to 80 into the 90s even that that many people in any platoon or whatever would actually shoot to kill if they were in that kind of situation. And uh, so she did a piece about this. <clears throat> and and it's, like, uh, it's like to do that training, it's knowing what seeds need to be watered in the recruits when they're doing the boot camp. It's like how do you find those seeds? And, and it was real, it's very scientific, you know. Because if you're going to have an army, you want an army that does its, what it's supposed to do, which is kill people. And uh, you know, how do you find those seeds? How do you water those seeds so that when they're in this situation, they do what they need to do? It'd be interesting if we all read this book and understand what our military does with our money. We probably maybe think differently. I mean, I, I don't know the solution. I'm not claiming to have any answers about this, but it's pretty uh, shocking to read this book. I think it's called On Killing, if you're interested in it. It's, it's a pretty compelling book. So this, this kind of gives us a real incentive to do this practice of, uh, because as long as we have these seeds, we're vulnerable 
to doing despicable things. And then, of course, when we do despicable things, we wind up a lot more seeds. So it just makes us even more vulnerable to doing despicable things. So we can, even though we might have a really good life, a lot of wealth, a lot of friends, all of us, as far as I can tell, have these seeds. And so if conditions change in our lives, you know, different seeds get watered, and we set in motion a different future. So the question we can ask ourselves is, what sort of future are we setting in motion now? And as a practitioner, we actually look forward to situations. We can look forward to situations where certain seeds get watered so that we can practice not reacting. Like we look forward to going home and spending time with our parents if that pushes your buttons. Because then you can really practice having your buttons pushed without acting it out. Or, you know, a particular sibling or a particular person in the office. To be there without acting on the aversion. Feeling that seed being watered, feeling it growing, right? But not taking the intention and bring it into action. That's the burning up of the seed. The intention's still there. There's no way we can stop, once the seed's been watered, the impulse to act, the impulse to think, the impulse to talk. Those impulses will be there. But we don't need to indulge in the thinking, get identified with it and run with it, indulge by talking about it or by acting on it. What else comes to mind about karma? <clears throat> Damien? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think talking to people, hearing talks, doing reading can be useful if it helps us to more quickly identify what intentions are alive in us or arising in, a, in the mind. Because I think that's what we want. And and one of the things, like even the book I mentioned on killing, one just reading that book, what we realize is that we're all potential killers. I mean, maybe some of us in the room those seeds aren't very, uh, uh, there aren't that many of them and they're not that wound up. But probably for most of us in the right situation, we'd become killers. You know, that we put in the right situation could become killers. And so that's really good. Then, then we can be on the lookout for that in an infant stage, like those killing seeds in an infant stage when we want to kill somebody, but in this situation, killing means we're just going to put them out of our heart. Like, we don't care about them. They're not worthy of our care. So that's a form, that's a subtle form of killing. And so we can hear or read about something, and then if that research or reading <clears throat> increases our uh, interest in the mind and heart, then I think it's wholesome. If it just leads to thinking about things, but not really doing this deeper reflection and looking, then it, it may actually distract us. You know, reading can distract us, or it can help us reflect better. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's true even with the best books. Like, the best book used in the wrong way won't help us. Used as a, just as a distraction to keep us from feeling what we're feeling. You know? And we do that sometimes with even really good books. Mm-hmm. Maria? Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says is, you know, don't deny that you're angry. <clears throat> and sometimes I, it's not always that easy for me to know when I'm done being angry with something or if I haven't been angry about it yet. Or, you know, I don't always know. Because um, just because I'm not feeling mad at the moment doesn't that, you know, that I'm not angry. I, I don't know, it just, I guess, I guess my question is, it's about how do you acknowledge those unwholesome seeds without watering them? Yeah, it's very difficult because they're very seductive. Yeah. The key is, uh, for the unwholesome seeds, the key is to see the pain in them the hurt in them, and to, to look there. Because if, if we don't look at the pain, we're going to get seduced by the content of those seeds. Because what those seeds will do is they'll find contact, content. Like if anger gets triggered, or aversion gets triggered in us, it's like everybody in this room can find some story to justify feelings of anger. Now, even though you're not angry right now, if for some reason the anger got stimulated in you and all of a sudden you felt angry, you could find lots of reasons to justify why you're angry. You know, you'd create, you'd bring up some situation from today or something that's going on in the world. And so, but we always get confused. We think, oh, I'm angry because of these thoughts of what I'm thinking about. But we don't know whether those thoughts came first or the anger came first. O- often, it's not the thoughts that triggered the anger. It was, there's anger... And then we got the thoughts, because we don't like having anger without thoughts, because it's painful. So the key is, can you go to the pain, the raw, direct experience of anger? What does anger feel like in the heart? And not, don't push the thoughts away, that's just more anger. But just be interested in the pain. And then if it's really, if there's really no pain, then in that moment there's no anger. And you don't need to go looking for it. Because that's another thing that we'll do is, like picking a scab, it's like, well, go looking for thoughts to see if the anger's still there. Oh, yeah, my brother, when I was five, he did this to me. And then I'll say, oh, yeah, I am angry. Because we basically have watered our own seeds. It's not just other external situations that water our seeds. We water our own seeds all the time unfortunately. Although we can water good seeds, too. Other thoughts people have? We have just a few. Oh, actually, we should probably end it here. It's 9 o'clock. So let's just take a few seconds. We'll pick it up again next week, but we'll take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together.
So we undertake this practice, this ongoing reflection, reflecting on the intentions in the mind and heart, not just as a way of taking care of our own life, but a deeper way of taking care of all beings. It's really our great gift. We do this work, and we really support all beings. May all beings be free of suffering and the roots, the seeds of suffering. So thanks for coming, everyone. So just a couple of announcements. Um, Anybody interested in mindfulness in the 12-step program? Uh, Many of you know Craig leads the group most Fridays, all Fridays except the first Friday, the month at 7. He's going to do a retreat for people uh, interested in mindfulness in the 12 steps uh, this Saturday afternoon, I think 1 to 5. And there's a little flyer on the bulletin board. You can read and contact Craig if you're interested in joining him for that retreat. And there's a half-day retreat coming up in May. I think it's the second weekend in May um, in the afternoon. And you can sign up for that in Entranceway. Santi Caro, a well-known teacher in this country and translator of of, uh, some of the Thai masters, uh, Thai meditation masters' writings over the last 20 years. He's done a number of translations. He's going to be here in May doing a retreat on the 19th. There may be one or two spots left for his retreat and then give a public talk on Sunday the 20th of uh, May. Any other announcements for the community people have? Still possibility to go to the retreat, the residential retreat at the end of the month. Uh, There's some yellow flyers on the shelf the last weekend in April, beginning Thursday night, ending Sunday at noon. If anybody's interested, you can get the information or just come see me. And if you'd like to contribute to the groceries for the retreatants, it's our tradition at Common Ground and in the Buddhist tradition more generally for the community to support people doing intensive practice. So you can either make a dessert for the retreat or I think Mary, the kitchen manager, said we could use some salad dressings and the recipes. We have all of that stuff. We can even get the groceries for you to do that if you'd like to do some cooking. Or you could just leave a contribution in the envelope on the little table in the entranceway for the retreat groceries. And then what we do, make a nice poster of all the community members uh, who have made any contribution whatsoever uh, toward the food. And it just gives the retreats a sense of being supported by the entire community. So you can get involved in that if you'd like. Any other announcements? Great, let's just end by saying our names. I'm Mark. Emily. Have a great week, everyone. Oh, thanks, Chris.
find uh, the beats?
the Minnesota Zen Center is on uh, the east side of Lake California. And it's good to check up, you know, check out, see where you're comfortable. I mean, I just enjoy where you talk about well, everything that you talk about, certainly karma. Um, so it was a very Sunday and Wednesdays are really meant to be wide open. Okay. Some of the people here have been practicing for 20 years. Oh, you're not the only people who are new. So it's really okay for people just to come. And then you may eventually want to take one of the intro classes or just even start some of the retreats. So don't feel like the half-day, day-long retreats are okay. If you come to a few of these first, then it's okay that you can sign up for some of the retreats. So it's okay to come at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's that's the question. That's question. That's if you are beginning, is there, you said an introductory, what would that be? Well, there's an intro workshop on Sunday, 6th of May, and then there's, uh, there will be a six-week class beginning in July. Yeah. On Is there information on the website? Yeah, on the website. Or if you want to get our, get our email mailing list, there's a little form on the shop you can fill out. And then we do a lot of, we like to do more and more of our communication by email and on the website. It's just cheaper. Oh, yeah. Much
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.